Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Friday, November 19, 2021, people. Hope everybody is doing well. Hope everybody is having a great day. Hope everybody is ready for the final episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast leading into Thanksgiving weekend. That is right. Last episode this week. Uh, don't yet know what the taping schedule is for next week. We'll have a normal Monday episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. After that, it gets a little foggy. I'll be traveling. You'll be traveling. So I'll try to keep you updated as best as I can. But TBA on what the next week of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast looks like. Obviously, after the Thanksgiving holiday, we will be back to three episodes per week. But I bring it up to say we got a holiday coming up and it remains to be seen. Today's show is normal, though. We will open Mel Tucker. He is a very, very, very rich man. Uh, on top of that, we will preview the Week 12 slate in college football, headlined, of course, by Ohio State, Michigan State. Beyond that, UCLA, USC, Oregon, Utah, uh, Arkansas, Alabama, on and on and on and on and on. We will take a break, and then we'll get into a little college hoops. It's been a, it's been, I'll basically do the one-week recap of college hoops as the Big Ten appears to be down. The Big East appears to be awesome. Uh, Mark Pope, some interesting thoughts on him. Could he one day be the next head coach at one major university? I've been saying it for years. I think that fan base is finally starting to come around. And, of course, the legend, the GOAT, the friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Jim Calhoun, has retired for a second time. He had been coaching D3. We'll talk about all that. Loaded show, fun show. Let's get into it. Let's get into the topic of the day. I know I just said let's get into it three times in a row. But let's get into the topic of the day. And the topic of the day is Mel Tucker is a very rich man. Congrats to him. Congrats to his family. Congrats to his kids. Congrats probably to his grandkids who are going to be taken care of as Mel Tucker, the report from the Detroit Free Press on Wednesday night is that he will sign a 10-year, $95 million extension. And I'll tell you this. Sometimes I'm right. Sometimes I'm wrong. Sometimes I'm somewhere in the middle. I told you for weeks, Michigan State would not be outbid for Mel Tucker. If Mel Tucker left, it would be for football reasons. It would be because a place like LSU has a higher ceiling than Michigan State. But that Michigan State was going to come through with the money to make it a non-money decision for him to stay at Michigan State. At the same time, where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, I had no idea we were talking about $95 million for Mel Tucker. 
So it, it, Mel Tucker, that's the report. I don't think it's official yet, but Mel Tucker is about to sign a mega, mega, mega contract um, that will make him, frankly, believe it or not, as crazy as it sounds, if my understanding is correct, this contract will make Mel Tucker, Mel freaking Tucker, a guy that many of you probably had never even heard of or knew very little about as of about seven or eight weeks ago, the second highest paid coach in college football. Uh, Nick Saban somewhere in the 10 plus million dollar range. But if my math is correct, I'm not great at math, don't claim to be, 10 years, 95 million, that's 9.5 per year. Um, 10.5, a year, that would put him ahead of Dabo Sweeney, who's nine plus, ahead of Jimbo Fisher, who's at nine, uh, ahead of Dan Mullen, who's weirdly pretty high up in those uh, you know standings. Kirby Smart is obviously due a raise, but he does not make that kind of money. So Mel Tucker, a very well-timed nine and one start to the season with the LSU job open. And so let's get into it. Let's break it down because you know I think this story is a reflection of a lot of what I tell you all the time on this show. Um, you know, first of all, what I would say is that when I come on this mic, I like to have interesting perspective, unique perspective. Come here for something that you will not hear anything else. And it's not a hot take. I try to be original. I try to be creative. I try to think. I try to talk to important people. So I am well-educated when I talk on a topic. But sometimes there is no reaction to have other than the obvious. And I think the obvious is also what I tell you. In this case, two things can be true. And in this case, both things are obvious. I don't really know if Mel Tucker's worth $9.5 million a year. But at the same time, I don't know what you do otherwise if you're Michigan State. And I think this is the move that you have to make if you're Michigan State, if you are serious about competing at the highest levels of college football. And so, again, I do believe two things are true. Not sure Mel Tucker's the second should be the second highest paid coach of college football, but this is also the price of doing business. In terms of why he probably should not be the second highest paid coach of college football, well, I, I think the numbers kind of explain themselves, right? He has only been a head coach for two full seasons prior to this year. And you can't even really say two full seasons because last year was a COVID year. But he is now in less than three seasons as a head coach. He's sitting there at 16 and 13 overall as a head coach. Five and seven at Colorado, two and five in a COVID year last year, nine and one this year, making him 16 and 13 overall, 11 and six at Michigan State. And so obviously it goes without saying that he does not have the resume of a coach that would traditionally get this kind of contract. I mean, I'm old enough to remember three, four years ago when Texas A&M offered Jimbo Fisher 10 years, 75 million guaranteed, the media freaked out. This is too much. What do you, I mean, Jimbo Fisher did win a national championship. Jimbo Fisher did make a college football playoff in its first year of existence in 2014, and Jimbo Fisher has been worth every penny for Texas A&M, who easily could have made the playoff last year, was playing really well, obviously struggled last week against Ole Miss, but Jimbo Fisher was worth every penny, and at the same time, like, I'll be honest, I don't think Mel Tucker's worth $95 million per year, 9.5 uh, uh, overall, especially when you consider that he's still got, as weird as it sounds, there's only two games left in the regular season, a really tough road ahead of him. I don't think he's beating Ohio State this weekend. We'll get to that one in a minute. I don't think he's beating Penn State next weekend at home. 
And so he could very well finish nine and three. That would be one point whatever million dollars per year for one, for every win that he has this season. So, I mean, we're talking about now the second highest paid coach in college football, potentially going nine and three in the regular season, nine and four with a bowl game. Now, of course, the inverse could be true as well. He could stun Ohio State this week. He could beat Penn State next week. He could go to the Big Ten championship game. He could go to the college football playoff in year two. And Michigan State will look very, very, very smart for giving him the money that they have now. But at the same time, I do think that the, the, the win-loss record will probably end up being 9-3. and three. He will be, so what, what would that make him? 16-15 and 15 at that point coming out of this regular season. And so, again, this is no discredit to Mel Tucker. I just don't think he should be the second highest paid coach in college football. And I don't think there's very many people, I think even Michigan State fans would say, uh, he probably doesn't deserve to be the second highest paid coach in college football. But life, here's the thing. Life isn't always about deserve. Life isn't always about fair. What'd your parents tell you? Life isn't always fair. And the one thing I would say, Mel Tucker had a very timely, what was it, 8-0 start, uh, 8-0 start into the top 10. He had a very timely uh, run at the, the start of this season. And so whether he deserves it or not, let's get to the second part, which can also be true. This is a move that Michigan State had to make. And Michigan State, obviously, look, we know that the perception out there in college football, they're a little brother. Now, are they really little brother? I don't know. They beat Michigan 10 out of the last 14 times. And so I don't even know if they're little brother anymore. But if you want to show the world that you are seriously committed as Michigan State to competing at the highest levels of college football, this is a move you have to make. And I don't really even know what the alternative is. I mean, first of all, if you don't have the money, that's a completely different deal, right? When Mel Tucker went to Michigan State, um, it was because Colorado, he was at Colorado for a year. Michigan State is in a pinch. They lose, uh, they lose Mark D'Antonio to retirement in early February, right after signing day, right after a, a contract bonus kicked in. Luke Fickle said no. They were desperate. And so Michigan State had the money to do that. Colorado did not have the money to match it. But in terms of Michigan State versus LSU, they had the money to match it. And so does Mel Tucker deserve it? Probably not. But I don't know what else you, what else you can do if you're Michigan State. One, you want to prove that you are a national power and that you have national staying power in football. I would say in 2021, there is no reason that Michigan State cannot be a consistent top 10, top 12, top 15 program, and you do that in the coming years, that could mean a playoff berth in the expanded college football playoff era. You have obviously very wealthy boosters. The big report coming out of this week was that all the money was privately funded from Michigan State boosters. None came from athletics, none came from the school, none came from the Big Ten TV contract. So you obviously have very wealthy boosters. You have that Big Ten money. There will be uh, increased money in terms of staff pool, in terms of the coaching staff that Mel Tucker can hire. You have increased money for resources. And so you have the money. You might as well spend it. And on top of that, what is the, what's the alternative? Just say it, letting Mel Tucker go to LSU if LSU wants him? Well, that happened once, um, uh, you know, about 20 years ago. They had a coach named Nick Saban. LSU put a big pile of cash on the table for Nick Saban. Now, back then, I think it was like $1.5, $2 million a year, and Michigan State decided not to match it. Well, they would not let history repeat itself. Nick Saban obviously goes on to be the greatest head coach in the history of college football. And so Michigan State says, you know what? We have the money. We're riding momentum. The fan base is excited. Let's lock this guy in for the long term. And so they did it. Now, in terms of the future of Michigan State football, I, I think that's the interesting part, right? The initial reaction from me is pretty simple. Two things can be true. He's not really worth it, 
but I don't know if you can do anything other than that if you're Michigan State. But now I think the interesting question becomes, what becomes of Michigan State football uh, now that they now that they have Mel Tucker for the very foreseeable future? And what I would say is exactly what I just said a few minutes ago. I think part of the reason that Mel Tucker stayed, I think there were, there were a lot of reasons. One, the money is incredible, right? But what money doesn't buy you happiness. That's the old saying. And if this was 10 years ago, 12 years ago with the BCS, if this was even four, five, six years ago where there's no expanded college football playoff on the horizon, I think that's a little bit of a different conversation for Mel Tucker to have. Yeah, the money's great, but if you're going to be beating your head up against Ohio State every single year, if you're not going to be able to break through, if you're not going to be able to get this program over the hump, then maybe you do take LSU where you can potentially have more chances to compete for national championships. I only bring that up to say, I think part of the reason that Mel Tucker took this extension, took this money, besides the fact that it's a great amount of cash, is the fact that we are headed towards a world that at some point we're going to have a 12-team college football playoff. And I think when you factor that in with kind of the ever-evolving state of college football and the Big Ten specifically, um, you know, I, I think it shows to me that Michigan State is a place where you can compete at really high levels. We, we don't think of it like that historically compared to Ohio State, Michigan, Michigan, or Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan. But now you start looking around the Big Ten, and I'll, I'll ask you what I just said a minute ago. Why can't this be the second best program in college football or in the Big Ten behind Ohio State? Just think about it. Look, what I would say is I think even a Michigan State fan would readily admit Ohio State ain't going anywhere. Uh, they are rolling. They are recruiting at an insane level. I say it all the time. There's a difference between signing the number one, number two class every year versus signing the seventh, eighth, tenth, twelfth best class. It is reflected every single year when Ohio State plays Michigan. Michigan signs fringe top ten classes. Ohio State signs top one, two classes. And, you know, uh, th there's just a different level of athleticism, size, speed on the field for Ohio State. It's kind of the same deal when Notre Dame goes to the college football playoff and plays Alabama, plays Clemson. There's a different deal with size, speed, athleticism, Notre Dame top 10 class versus Alabama top one class. So Ohio State's not going anywhere. But you start to look at the rest of the Big Ten picture, back to Michigan State, why can't Michigan State be that second best team? Just think about it. Penn State is, is a weird dumpster fire right now where they're 6-4. and four. Um, They still have, obviously, Michigan State later this year. But it's the weird thing where James Franklin wants to leave, but he might not really have a place to go if he finishes 7-5, and five, and the fan base wants him to leave, but they kind of don't want him to leave, and nobody really knows. So it, when I think about Michigan State and why I think about this job, why this job may appeal to Mel Tucker, yeah, you're probably not topping Ohio State soon anytime soon. But at the same time, can you permanently surpass Penn State, which is just a very confused place right now with the James Franklin situation? I think you can't. Can you permanently pass Michigan? Well, you've kind of already passed Michigan. And let's be honest, if Jim Harbaugh gets smoked by Ohio State next weekend, that whole cycle of should Jim Harbaugh come back for another year, that whole thing is going to start over again. And even if Jim Harbaugh stays, which my guess would be he's the head coach at Michigan in 2022, Michigan's, Michigan State already owns them. Michigan State's you know three and four against them overall, but they've won the last two. Mel Tucker's two and zero oh against them. You could argue that Michigan State has already passed Michigan. I don't know if I would say that, but I think you can make the argument three and four versus Harbaugh overall. Uh, in the last two, they have beaten Jim Harbaugh since Mel Tucker has gotten there. So when you factor that in, when you factor in what's going on with the West, where it's kind of Wisconsin some years, it's kind of Iowa, Nebraska might get there one day, but probably not. 
I mean, there is no reason to think that Michigan State cannot be the second-best program in the Big Ten, and in an expanded world of a 12-team college football playoff, being the second-best team gets you there. So when Mel Tucker has this money on the table, when he sees the fact that we're probably headed towards a 12-team playoff, where we're probably headed towards a you know, scenario where he can get into the playoff at 10-2 and two as the second-best team in the, in the Big Ten Conference, I think this makes a ton of sense. Why go to LSU where you just fired a coach that won a national championship two years ago? Not 10 years ago, not 15 years ago like, like Les Miles. He won a national championship two years ago, and you got rid of him. And I've said this from the beginning, and it's going to be very interesting to see what happens with LSU going forward because I will tell you in coaching circles, that has been the conversation, right? Like everybody talks about, oh, the last three coaches at LSU have won national championships. It's a great job. Well, it is a great job. But the last two coaches at LSU have gotten fired after winning national championships. And so I think a lot of coaches that, that know the upside of LSU will also sit, look at where they are right now and say, look, I have a lot more job security where I am right now, and I think that was part of Mel Tucker's decision. I think when you factor in, 12-team playoff is probably coming the next four or five years. I can get Michigan State consistently into the playoff. I may already be the second-best program in the Big Ten, and if not, there's going to be a lot of real estate going forward. And also the fact of, like, do I really want to go to LSU where if by year two I'm not competing with Nick Saban, they're going to want to run me out of that place? It makes sense for Mel Tucker. Finally, what I would say, last little thought on this topic, and we'll start previewing week 12 in college football. Last little thought. I think this is what the future of college coaching searches look like, right? Is that we are now in a different world. Um, We are even in a different world than 20 years ago when Nick Saban left Michigan State for LSU and won a national championship there in year two. Uh, Back then, you just didn't pay that kind of money. You didn't pay any kind of money to keep coaches. There just weren't that many schools that were willing to compete at the highest level, that were willing to pay the money necessary to to keep and retain or go get truly elite coaches. I'll tell you a quick side story, and I know I'm going all over the place. But another guy that decided to quote-unquote retire this year, Butch Davis at Florida International. He was the head coach at the University of Miami in 2000 when they finished number three in the country. And if there had been a four-team college football playoff, that team would have won the national championship back then, okay? Following year, they win the national championship, one of the greatest teams ever. By the way, I saw ESPN did a little oral history on the 2001 Miami Hurricanes. Your boy Torres did it at FoxSports.com about four, five, six years ago. Whatever, neither here nor there. I bring it up because I remember interviewing Butch Davis for that story. And he said that the re- he didn't want to leave Miami. He had the number three team in the country. He had a team good enough to win the national championship coming back next year that ultimately did win the national championship next year. But he said, look, I was making like $900,000 a year, which I know to you, I know to me, I know to whoever, it sounds like a lot of money. It sounds like great money. But at that time, he said, look, I beat Bobby Bowden head to head. He was still making more money than me. I beat uh, Steve Spurrier that year, my final year head-to-head, he was making more money than me. And Miami would not budge on my contract. And so when the Cleveland Browns, he ultimately left Miami for Cleveland, when they offered him whatever it was, I forget, I want to say like five years, $15 million, which isn't even that much money in the modern era of, uh, of football, he said, look, I got to take care of my family. I got That was money that was going to set up my family for the rest of my life and help my children going forward. I had to make that decision. That was only in 2000. That wasn't really that long ago. And so you look at the current climate of college football right now, I think it is going to be really tough 
for really elite, even elite programs to get head coaches that they really want to leave good jobs for others because the money is so good. I think Mel Tucker is a microcosm of it, but look at the bigger picture of college football. Um, you know, it's really funny when we look at this LSU job where everyone's talking, about, oh, it's the greatest job ever and everybody's going to want it. How did Coach O get the job in the first place? It was because Tom Herman turned him down, Jimbo Fisher turned him down, and all of a sudden you're looking up and you're like, we can't get anybody that's going to make this fan base happy, so we'll take Coach O on a discount, we'll put the money into the coaching staff, we'll pay a lot for coordinators, we'll pay a lot for facilities, and we'll hopefully uh, be able to figure it out with Coach O. What happened the last time Ohio State opened? They didn't even do a search, they just promoted Ryan Day. What happened last time Oklahoma uh, opened? Uh, they didn't even do a search, they promoted Lincoln Riley. And so I think on and on and on as we go forward, I think it is going to be increasingly difficult to get good coaches to leave good jobs for other jobs, even if that job is a truly elite job like LSU. I mean, think about it. How many coaches right now have ultimately, how many coaches just period are leaving good power five jobs? Now, I'm not talking about a group of five where you're making, you know, $1.8 million a year and you can make six a year at Georgia or Florida or whatever. By the way, Georgia's another perfect example. They, you know, Georgia opens, we all agree it's one of the two, three best jobs in college football. They had to hire Alabama's defensive coordinator. Now, he was the right fit. He was a former Georgia alum. But I just bring it up to say I think it's going to be harder and harder to get good coaches to leave good jobs for other ones. Um, you know, the last coach, by the way, to leave the SEC for another job without being fired, it was James Franklin, who had the worst job in the league at Vandy and went to Penn State, which is probably one of the best 10, 12 jobs in the country. Mel Tucker, like I said, yes, he left Colorado, but that was a different deal. They couldn't match the money that, that Michigan State was offering. They let him go. So I'm just sitting there saying, Mel Tucker just got 9-5. P.J. Fleck got an extension this year to kind of ward off anybody coming to try to take him as a head coach. I know Ole Miss is feverishly working to get, get Lane Kiffin signed so that if one of these jobs opens up, Miami, whatever, uh, that he will not be a candidate there. So I am just saying, I think it's a real, first of all, congrats to Mel Tucker. I think it's a really interesting situation uh, there. And I think it's a really interesting situation in college football where all of a sudden, I think it's going to be really, really, really hard to get good coaches away from good jobs. So what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk a little week 12 college football. We'll, we'll start with Michigan State, obviously. Michigan State, Ohio State. From there, we'll go to Utah, Oregon. On and on and on and on and on. Then some college hoops. We will be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Week 12, college football. We're going to get to that in a minute. But before we do, I want to welcome back a message from our partners at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. DraftKings has an incredible offer for first-time users. And so many of you guys ask me, you say, guys and girls, no sexism on this show, you always say, Torres, what can I do to help? You make me laugh. I like your show. Sometimes you annoy me. You drive me a little bit crazy. But you work hard. I like you. How can I help? Well, here's the deal. First-time users sign up for DraftKings Sportsbook. In the process, they will give you an incredible deal if you've never signed up for DraftKings before. Here's what the deal is. Bet $1 on any game if the team you bet on, any game in college football this weekend, if the team you bet on scores one point, you get $100 in free bets. So I'm not telling you what to do. I'm not telling you who to pick. But my guess is Ohio State's probably going to score a single point this week against Michigan State. Think Arkansas is, or Alabama is going to score a single point against Arkansas this week. Not telling you what to do, but if you bet $1, on any team, if they score one point, you get $100 in free bets courtesy of the DraftKings Sportsbook and the DraftKings Sportsbook app. Incredible offer. Here's what you have to do to take advantage of that. 
click the link in the show description, okay? So you sign, you listen on Apple, you listen on Spotify, you listen on Amazon Music. There will be a link in the show description. Click there, sign up for a new account with the DraftKings Sportsbook, and make your first deposit. Make a dollar bet on any team, and if that team scores one point, you get an automatic $100 thanks to our friends at DraftKings Sportsbook. It is the best offer going, first-time users only, incredible deal. Click the link in the show description, sign up now. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia, 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, or call or text Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 in the state of Tennessee. Must be 21 plus or over to enter, 18 plus or over in Wyoming. Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming only. Minimum $5 deposit, minimum $1 wager. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. Do appreciate our partners at DraftKings Sportsbook for all they have done with us all fall long. Again, an incredible deal. I gave you all the details, and I encourage you to check it out. Click the link in the show description. With that said, it's time to do a quick preview of Week 12 in college football. And what I would say about Week 12 and kind of where we are in college football, this is now the time of the year where just weird stuff starts to happen, weird results start to happen, because I think everybody is ground down, right? And so obviously there are those two, three, four teams that are really playing for something. Maybe this year it's seven or eight if you include Michigan and Cincinnati and Oregon and all them. But in general, it's just kind of a weird time of year where weather's a factor in certain parts of the country. Uh, it's cold. You got coaches eyeing other jobs. Maybe a coach has already been fired. And so you really just never know what you're going to get late in November. Uh, especially in the week heading into rivalry games. We know how big Michigan and Ohio State is next week. How does Michigan handle Maryland this week? We know how big um, you know, Auburn, Alabama is, but Alabama has to get through Arkansas first. So let's get into the preview. Let's, get, let's talk about it. And let's start with the big game featuring the very wealthy Mel Tucker. Drinks are on Mel Tucker if you live in East Lansing this weekend as Michigan State is playing at Ohio State. That is the big game of the weekend. Uh, it is a noon kickoff on ABC, and I think the thing that stands out to everybody when we're talking about this game is the point spread is almost three touchdowns. Ohio State is close to a three-touchdown favorite. Now, I know this isn't a gambling show. We do the specific college football betting show with Aaron Torres. I encourage you to listen, it if you, listen to it if you want more gambling talk, but I do think point spreads are important because it reflects how the odds makers who have no bias, no agenda, they just are trying to make money, how they see this game and they see this one as being a blowout. And I'll be honest, I don't really think that number is all that far off, and I think Ohio State should be a comfortable favorite, and I think it's for one obvious reason. It's for what I've been telling you for two, three, four weeks now on Michigan State. I love Michigan State. I love Mel Tucker. I'm happy that he got $95 million a year. I hope he, you know, I hope he has fun, and I hope he celebrates this offseason and does something great with his family. But at the same time, of every single contender in college football right now, and Michigan State still is very much a contender, I think Michigan State has the single biggest flaw of anyone in college football. And that flaw is this. Their defensive backfield is terrible. They couldn't stop a pass. Uh, you know, if uh, whatever. I can't even think of a good analogy off the top of my head. Michigan State ranks dead last in college football. This is an incredible stat. There are 130 teams in college football. 
Michigan State ranks 130th in pass defense, and now they're going up against an Ohio State pass offense that is the best in the Big Ten. I would argue even though statistically they are not the best pass offense in college football, that instead, that honor would go to Western Kentucky. How about the Hilltoppers? But Ohio State is the sixth-ranked pass offense, the best pass offense in the Big Ten, and what they have is what is indisputably the best wide receiver core in college football. I've talked about it before, but think about what Ohio State is doing at the wide receiver position right now. First of all, P.J. Flex said earlier this year in the lead-up to their Week 1 game that it was the best wide receiver room that he had ever seen in the history of college football. I don't know if it was better than two years ago when Alabama had four first-round picks, Jerry Judy, Henry Ruggs, uh, Devontae Smith, and Jalen Waddell. But what I do know is there is no wide receiver room in college football like Ohio State right now. Here's how good it is. First of all, you have two guys that are going to be first-round picks this year. That would be Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. So if you just finish there, that's not a very bad place to start. On top of that, you have the number one wide receiver from the high school class of 2020 who can't even get on the field. His name's Julian Fleming. You have the number one wide receiver from the class of 2021, Emeka Egbuka, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. He can't even get on the field. So you have the number one wide receiver in the last two high school classes that can't even get on the field. And I haven't even mentioned their leading wide receiver yet, who's Jackson Smith and Jigba. If you watch that Nebraska game, he tore apart Nebraska. So that is five great wide receivers right there. You have a great uh, pass-catching tight end in Jeremy Ruckert. You have a great pass-catching running back in Travion Henderson. And I don't know how a Michigan State team that has basically shown an inability to stop anyone's passing attack all year is able to stop this this Ohio State passing attack what I would also say is I think Ohio State can kind of be uh, you know attacked through the pass game as well as great as Ohio State looks on paper in certain categories especially on the offensive side of the football they have not done a great job of of defending the pass this year they rank 108th nationally they're giving up 261 yards through the air per game now I would say it's worth noting they've blown out a lot of teams a lot of teams have thrown the ball a lot late but it doesn't change the fact that this pass defense for Ohio State can be exposed problem is I don't think that Michigan State has the dudes to do it you look at who Michigan State has right now you look at what they are doing at the quarterback position Peyton Thorne their quarterback has been up and down, you know, good and bad, had good days and bad days. But last week or last couple weeks, he has been good, but not elite. Had a good game against Maryland last week, the week before against uh, uh, Purdue when they really struggled. Two touchdowns, one interception, 66% completion. A few weeks before that, you, you, you beat Michigan, but it's really because of Kenneth Walker. Um, you know, Peyton Thorne, 63% completion percentage, zero touchdowns, two interceptions. So this game is all about matchups to me. And this is a big one, right? Top 10 matchup, two really good teams, two very well compensated head coaches, two very successful young head coaches. But when I look at it, all of the matchups benefit benefit Ohio State, which has an elite passing game going up against a really bad Michigan pass defense. And then from there, Michigan's pass offense isn't good enough to expose Ohio State. Let's get to the other big one. And again, I know this isn't a gambling show, but I do think the point spread matters when Utah is hosting Oregon. Oregon is the number three team in the country. If Oregon wins out, they are going to go to the college football playoff because right now I would argue they have the second best win of anybody in college football, only behind Texas A&M beating Alabama. And that is a win at Ohio State. And I think you can maybe even argue winning at Ohio State is as impressive, if not more, than Texas A&M beating Alabama on a last-second field goal in College Station. Anyway, not really here to talk about that. What I am here to talk about is the fact that despite Oregon 
being a th being the number three team in the country, they are actually a three-point underdog in the DraftKings Sportsbook going into Saturday. So again, this isn't a gambling show, but you talk about weird point spreads, weird lines. Well, guess what? Oregon is the number three team in the country, is an underdog going to Utah. And I think it's for a few reasons. First of all, Utah's a really interesting team. They were, for the record, my team, my pick to win the Pac-12 this year. I thought they were going to be awesome. And they have had a very interesting year. The reason I picked them to win the Pac-12, it was because they literally returned 21 of 22 starters. The only starter they did not return was a guy at quarterback, and they brought in a big, highly coveted transfer from Baylor named Charlie Brewer. Here's why the season got crazy. They opened the season 1-2 and two overall. They lose to BYU. They lose to San Diego State, which, as it turns out, both those teams were pretty good. Charlie Brewer gets benched. Charlie Brewer immediately goes into the transfer portal. I don't even know if he has eligibility left. Um, and he decides to leave uh, the program. And everybody thinks the program is going to fall apart. Instead, they put in this kid, Cam Rising, and he has been incredible. And at the very least, he has provided stability. I don't know if he's an elite quarterback, but the, the numbers that they are putting up, here is what Utah has done the last few weeks. And it's crazy. I know we don't talk a ton about the Pac-12, not only on this show, but nationally. Utah, believe it or not, it's not Oregon. It's not Washington State. It's not USC. It's not UCLA. Utah has the number one scoring offense in the Pac-12, and it is directly reflected in changing quarterbacks going into this guy, Cam Rising, and the confidence that he has instilled in this program. Here is what Utah has put up the last five weeks. 42 points against USC, 35 points against Arizona State, 34 points in a loss to, uh, to Oregon State, 44 against UCLA, 52 against Stanford, 38 against Arizona. So in the last, I guess, six games, excuse me, they have not put up less than 34 points, steamrolling everybody. They're now in first place in the Pac-12, and if they win this game, they would clinch the Pac-12 South and play in the Pac-12 championship game in two weeks in Las Vegas at Allegiant Stadium. They would probably play Oregon, but it doesn't change the fact that Oregon needs to win this game. But when I look at this game, I think it's going to be a tough matchup for Oregon. One, Rice Eccles Stadium is a really, really, really tough place to play. On top of that, what you also have to consider is the fact that I don't think Oregon's offense has been very good these last couple weeks. Now, it isn't totally Oregon's fault. It's not because they stink. It's not because they're overrated. One, their best skill position player, C.J. Verdell, was lost for the season with an injury. We know that Joe Moorhead, their, their offensive coordinator, missed a little bit of time uh, with some health issues. He is now back, and the offense has looked better. But you start to look at what this offense has done. It has been a little bit underwhelming here over the last couple weeks. Uh, first of all, obviously, Joe Moorhead came back. You beat UCLA, but we're going to get into that UCLA defense in a minute. It is not very good. Uh, you beat Colorado. Okay, Colorado's terrible. Washington it's a 26-16 game, but if you really watch that game, it was close, it was low scoring, it was sloppy, it was whatever. And then last week they beat Washington State, final score was 38-24, but if you actually look at, you know, if you actually watch the game, it was 14-14 at halftime, and even it, it was only 24-14 going into the fourth quarter before Oregon pulled away late. And so I just bring it up to say, this Oregon offense, it has not been humming the way that we think of it as humming, dating back to that Ohio State game in week two. It's also worth noting, and I've been on this, I think, more than most people, their quarterback, Anthony Brown, he's good, but he is far from elite. 12 touchdowns in 10 games, four interceptions, 64% completion percentage. I just don't know if late in games when they need him to make a play, he is a guy that is capable of doing it. I would not be surprised if Utah wins this game. 
Let's stay in the Pac-12 because kind of an interesting just rivalry game, if you will. UCLA, USC, baby. UCLA is a three-point favorite. The over-under is set for 66 and a half. And what I would just tell you, if you like points, this might be the game for you. And let's start with UCLA because I'll tell you, UCLA is kind of an interesting deal. Um, I don't know if this is getting as much pub nationally as it is locally. There are a lot of people that are really unhappy with Chip Kelly. And I'll be honest, I don't get it. Like, if you want Chip Kelly out at UCLA, I think you're insane. First of all, they went 3-4 and four last year. They would have made a bowl game if there had been uh, a full season in 2020. This year, they are 6-4. and four. They beat USC. They play Cal next week. They're probably going to finish 8-4 and four overall. Like, UCLA, you got to know where you are in the grand scheme of college football. And I think if you can get to 7-5, and 8-4, and four and go to a bowl game... I think that is something that you should be very happy with. But UCLA fans, for some reason, are very unhappy. But what I would say is part of the reason is the UCLA defense is not very good right now. Uh, last week, they played one of the worst offenses in college football, gave up 20 points in the first half to, to, to Colorado. Week before, they gave up 44 to Utah. Week before that, 34 to Oregon. Uh, they gave up uh, 42 earlier in the year against Arizona State. And, of course, prior to that, we all remember the Fresno game where they gave up 40 points to Fresno. And so this program is very much developing, it's very much evolving, but the frustration with UCLA is that the defense isn't where it needs to be. And that's where I think there's going to be big friction between Chip Kelly and the administration. Not saying I've been told that, but the frustration is that they want him to shake up the defensive staff. He kind of brought some of his old buddies from the Oregon days. He refuses to, to, to basically move off of his guys, and I think it could create some friction within that program. Now, in terms of this game itself, like I said, I would expect points for, for a couple reasons. Um, you know, there is a very clear way to beat UCLA. You have to, if you, if you can stop the run, UCLA runs the ball really effectively, you can beat them. Uh, you need to be able to stop the ball, stop the run, and you need to be able to pass the ball because UCLA has an elite rushing offense. They are top 20 in the country in rushing offense, and they are bottom 20 in the country in pass defense. Well, what I would say about USC is, they fit one part of that description. They sure can sling the ball. UCLA, or U, yeah, USC, excuse me, they are currently the number one pass offense in the Pac-12. They are currently uh, in the top 10 nationally in pass offense. And what's going to be interesting about this game, this game is almost for USC going to start to be an audition for next season. Uh, Keaton Slovis, their longtime starting quarterback, he is hurt. Jackson Dart, who got one start and was awesome earlier this, this year against Washington State, he threw for almost 400 yards. He will be getting this start, and so it'll be interesting to see what USC does and how much they let him loose, knowing that that whole staff probably is not going to be back next year. This is probably the last big game that they're going to coach as USC head coaches. Do they let it loose? Do they try to beat UCLA? Do they try to uh, make one last run at retaining jobs on the new staff? Because I think that they probably realistically will. So this game, if you're betting it, if you like it, if you're just watching it, I would expect a lot of points because that USC offense should be able to throw the ball. It is worth noting their best wide receiver, Drake London, is out for the year with an injury. But they should be able to throw the ball. Um, and I think USC's, UCLA is going to be able to run the ball. And I think it's going to be back and forth. And I think this game has like 40 to 37, uh, 44 to 40 written all over it. Let's rip through some of the other games in college football this weekend. Uh, really kind of a quiet slate in the in the SEC this is kind of that time of year where the SEC team starts scheduling directional school this, fake school that. Uh, you know, Tennessee is playing South Alabama. I know that off the top of my head. Uh, Texas A&M is playing Prairie View this weekend. Uh, the Georgia Bulldogs, how about my dogs? 
Don't think they're going to be in much uh, danger against Charleston Southern this week. Don't think you got to bark. You don't have to bark too loud, too much bite against Charleston Southern. Uh, but so not too much going on in the SEC. The only real marquee game, Arkansas at Alabama. And what's really interesting to me about this one is it's going to be kind of the interesting debate of basically like what, like, like basically do you trust what your eyes tell you or do you trust what the numbers tell you? And what, what I mean by that is this, is that I, I keep going back. I don't think Alabama's very good this year. I don't think they're bad. I don't think there's a lot of great teams. I think outside of Georgia, everyone has major, major, major flaws. But when I look at this Alabama team, uh, I just don't I don't think they're very good. I, I've gone through it. Two-point win against Florida. Six yards rushing the last time we saw them against LSU. And so I know they destroyed New Mexico State last week. But I would also sit back and say, I just don't see this as being the type of team that is going to you know, get into the playoff and start ripping through teams once they get there. And so I bring it up to say, uh, I think Arkansas, which is a tough, physical team, gritty team, finds ways to stay in. I think they can be competitive in this game based on what my eyes tell me. Now, what the statistics and what the metrics tell me is this is a real bad matchup for Arkansas because Arkansas does one thing really well, that's run the football. Well, Alabama has a top 10 run defense, number two run defense in the SEC behind only Georgia. On top of that, the two definitive ways to beat Alabama, if you can stop the run, or excuse me, if you can pass the ball, their pass defense is very limited. Uh, in the 60s nationally, not an elite pass defense by any stretch of the imagination. Arkansas doesn't really throw the football. And then from there, on top of that, also remember one final thing. When you talk about Alabama, when you talk about this team, the O-line has been a mess all year long. So if you can get pressure on Bryce Young, like Texas A&M did, like LSU did, you can slow down this offense. The problem is Arkansas has just 19 sacks in 10 games. Because of it, uh, I think Alabama wins. I do think this can be close just because, like I said, I don't think this is a vintage Alabama team. I think they can be exposed, and it'll be interesting to see what happens from here. Last game that to me is kind of interesting, Clemson at Wake Forest. And what I would say about Clemson is I do think, listen, I get a lot of stuff wrong, and I know I do where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. I whiff on all sorts of stuff. Uh, but I think I've been pretty on top of Clemson. I was probably the first person to say nationally, I don't think they're very good. I think they kind of stink. Then from there, I kind of started to turn on them around the Florida State game. I said, you know what? They're starting to figure things out. They are, as I, as I talk right now, a four-and-a-half-point favorite against Wake Forest. And I don't get it. I don't think that number is right at all. I think Wake Forest is going to be able to move the football on them because Wake Forest has moved the football on anybody. So another game that I think could be pretty compelling, pretty interesting, pretty high scoring. Wake Forest has scored 35-plus on every single team that they have played this year. Clemson, of course, uh, has struggled offensively. Now, they're great defensively, but it's not as though Clemson hasn't given up points in games. I mean, you know, Clemson gave up uh, almost 400 yards to Louisville in a game that they easily could have lost. They won 30 to 24 in that one. Uh, you know, they gave up 27 to Pitt. Kenny Pickett was awesome in that game. So it's not as though this team can't give up points. And Wake Forest is going to make you earn everything you get on defense. So this four and a half point spread just seems like too much to me. I should mention, as always, by the way, all of my picks available at AaronTorresOnline.com. So what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I want to come back one final segment. Let's talk a little college hoops. Week one is in the books. I got a lot of thoughts. The Big, Ten, the Big East is awesome. The Big Ten sucks. We will be right back.
All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. And I do want to switch gears, and I do want to talk a little bit of college hoops because we are now about 10 days into the college hoops season. Obviously, on last Wednesday's show, I talked the Champions Classic uh, between Kentucky and Duke, and I talked Michigan State, Kansas. On Monday's episode, I, do- I talked UCLA, Gonzaga, or UCLA, uh, Villanova, excuse me, Texas, Gonzaga. But this week, we did get some results, and I do think they matter, and I do want to talk about them. And before I do, it is worth noting that college basketball is a completely different sport than college football. If you listen to the front end of this show, if you're more of a college football fan than college basketball fan, understand if your team has taken a loss or has not looked good or is a little bit sloppy, that is okay. This is not college football where from week one, hour one, minute one, you have to be locked in, ready to go. If anything, it's actually the exact opposite. Uh, In some ways, you don't want to be too good too early because you don't want to be peaking in November and December when other teams might be able to catch up by the end of the year. But with that said, we have had some results. They do matter. They are interesting. And so let's get into them. And let me start by saying this. Uh, One I think I was completely wrong on the Big East. And so this isn't a segment where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, but as a little bit of a backstory, um, you know, coming into the season, I think I felt about the Big East like most people did. I had two teams ranked pretty high, Villanova, which returned four starters, UConn, of course, coming off of an NCAA tournament bid where they returned everybody other than James Booknight. I obviously have them in the Final Four, so I'm a little higher on them them than most. But after you got past UConn, it was kind of like, eh, I don't know about this conference. Uh, Xavier's good, but their coach is kind of, eh, Uh, St. John's, Mike Anderson, I don't know. Seton Hall, what do they have? Providence, what do they have? Blah, 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 blah. I bring this up because this week there was an event called the Gavit Games. And so last week we have the Champions Classic. Next week we have all these great events, the Maui Invitational, uh, Battle for Atlantis. I'll do a full preview on Monday's show of all those tournaments, by the way. But I just bring it up because, you know, this week was a little bit of a quiet week. But there's an event this week called the Gavit Games, which is essentially the Big Ten Big East Challenge. Okay, we have the ACC Big Ten Challenge coming up later. We have the SEC Big 12 Challenge coming up down the road. Well, this week was the Gavit Games. This week was essentially the Big East Big Ten Challenge. And boy, oh boy, did the Big East make a statement. Eight games total. The Big East goes six and two uh, in those games. The Big East has three wins of unranked teams from the Big East beating ranked teams from the Big Ten. And they just absolutely laid waste to the Big Ten. And I think it's worth noting the two best teams in the Big East didn't even play in this event. Villanova did not play in this event for the Big East. UConn did not play in this event for the Big East. So essentially, you took the bottom eight teams in the Big East, you put them up against the Big Ten and some really good teams in the Big Ten, it's worth noting. Purdue, the preseason favorite, did not play, but Michigan ranked in the top 10, uh, Illinois ranked in the top 15, Ohio State ranked in the top 20, all played, all lost. Let's get into it. Let's talk about some of these specific teams, and I'll get into the Big Ten perspective in a minute, but I want to start by giving the Big East credit, because I thought overall they looked really, really, really good. The only wins from the Big Ten, it is worth noting. Uh, My boy Mike Woodson, Mike F. and Woodson, they did beat St. John's, but even that was by two at home, and Michigan State took care of Butler. We'll get to the Big Ten in a minute. Let's start with the Big East, though, and let me start with probably the single biggest result from the week, okay? Uh, And that was Seton Hall going to Michigan and getting an outright upset win. Final score 67-65. Michigan came into the game ranked in the top five in the country, number four overall. I could be mistaken, but I believe it is the highest ranked team that Seton Hall has ever beaten in the non-conference portion of the schedule. And let me just say this. I think there was a lot of reaction kind of nationally on what's wrong with Michigan. Unfortunately for those losers, Uh, I do my homework, I watch these games, and I will tell you this, I don't think it was a reflection on Michigan, 
I think it was much more of a reflection on that Seton Hall is really, really, really good. And having seen all these teams at least once, I think they're like a top 15 team. I don't think they're Gonzaga. I don't think they're UCLA. But I think they're in that second tier that is probably better than we give them credit for. Why is that? I think they have, and this is where we get nerdy with the college hoops talk, so forgive me, but I, what they have, what I think they, they do, what they are going to do well all year, they are going to defend their butts off, and what stood out to me watching Michigan, they have length at all five positions, okay? And if you remember last year with Michigan, they made the Elite Eight, they, they won the Big Ten regular season title, easily could have made the Final Four. That was kind of Michigan's MO. They had Franz Wagner, who was a first-round pick uh, of the Sacramento Kings. They had Hunter Dickinson down low. They had, um, you know, all these guys, and they just created so many matchup problems on the defensive end, and really that was a lot of Seton Hall this week in this game. They have a guard named Kadari Richmond, who's about 6'5", with a 6'10 wingspan. Kentucky fans will remember him. They recruited him briefly in the transfer portal. Uh, they got a kid, Jared Roden, Miles Kale. They just have a lot of length at a lot of positions. And the one thing that stood out to me watching that game was that Michigan all night long could not get an easy basket. They finished shooting 41% from the field, 20% from 3-3 of 15. Um, and, and, and I just think when I look at this Seton Hall team, I truly believe that this is who they are going to be all year. They are going to give people all sorts of trouble. To me, this was not fluky. It was fluky in the result, but if you watched the game, if you saw the two teams on the floor, I thought there was zero doubt that Seton Hall was the better team. Credit to them for getting the win. I think they're a legitimate top 15 team in the country. We will get to Michigan when we talk about the Big Ten momentarily. Second big upset. How about them Xavier Musketeers? Love the Musketeers. Clink, 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 clink. That's, that's two swords uh, 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 fighting in the background. But what I'll say about Xavier, they're a really interesting team because I think everyone looked at them on paper, and I include myself, and said, that's a really good team. That's an NCAA tournament team in 2021-2022. I think we also, though, at times have to look at recent history when it comes to a team like that, and the questions surrounding Xavier were not about the talent on the court, but instead the head coach on the sidelines. For people who forget, their head coach is a guy named Travis Steele, young guy, just turned 40, year four, taken over for Chris Mack after Chris Mack left for Louisville. And by the way, we're gonna have to have a talk about Louisville at some point because they uh they really laid the egg. Uh they they've really laid the egg so far this season, losing to a good but not great Furman team a few weeks ago. But I just bring it up to say Travis Steele takes over for Chris Mack. I think there's legitimate questions about is he the answer long term? This is now year four. They have not played in the NCAA tournament. It's worth noting 2020, there was no NCAA tournament, but they weren't going that year. Finished 19 and 13 overall. Uh, last year, they finished 13 and 8. I will say there was a little bit, they had some injuries down the stretch. Their best player, Nate Johnson, gets hurt. And so coming into the year, a lot of people were really high on Xavier, but we just didn't know did, could you really trust the coach, Travis Steele? Well, I still don't know if I can trust the coach, Travis Steele, and it's worth noting, I have a buddy who coaches in the Big, T Big East. He said Xavier is the second-best team in the league, and I said, I don't trust Travis Steele. He said, I don't either, but the talent is so good, and that was on display on Thursday when they played Ohio State and won convincingly in a game against Ohio State. The final score made it look a lot closer than it was. It was 71-65, but Xavier was up nine at the half. They had a big lead for most of the first half into the second half, kind of had a lapse defensively, which again is a reflection of the coach. But what I would say is that like Seton Hall, they have size, length, and shooting and scoring at every position. That was the thing that stood out to me about Xavier. I thought Seton Hall defensively is going to be really elite. 
I think Xavier offensively is going to be really elite. They have a guy named Paul Scruggs, who was the preseason Big East Player of the Year. He didn't even play that well, 14 points in, in that game. It was actually his lowest scoring game of the season. The kid Nate Johnson I mentioned was really good with 12 points. On top of that, Colby Jones, a sophomore. Jerome Hunter, a transfer from Indiana. Uh, you know, you just look across the board. Jack Nungy, a transfer from Iowa. I just look at Xavier and I say, I think this team offensively is probably going to be one of the better teams in the Big East and should be one of the better teams nationally. I think UConn will be driven by its, its defense. I think uh, Seton Hall will be driven by its defense. I think St. John's under Mike Anderson will be driven by its defense. I think Marquette, who I'm going to talk about in a minute, will be driven by its defense. I think Xavier will be driven by its offense. But they beat Ohio State top 20 team at home. We'll talk about Ohio State in a minute, but good win for Xavier. And then finally, I just wrap up on the Big East talk uh, with Marquette. And let me say this. I crushed Shaka Smart. And if you remember, Shaka Smart left Texas this offseason to go to Marquette. We talked so much about Chris Beard being at Texas. We forget that Shaka Smart is at Marquette. I got to say, man, I may have been wrong on Shaka, and that may have been a bad fit for a good coach at Texas for him because they are awesome under Shaka Smart this year. Now, what I'll say is awesome is a relative term. They played Illinois. Illinois did not have Kofi Coburn, their star center, out for a dumb NCAA suspension. But to their credit, I mean, Shaka Smart has this team playing hard. And it's so funny because we go back to the Texas thing. Uh, you know, everybody tells me, Torres, you should never talk about another man's job. Well, if a guy's not doing very good at his job, it's kind of my responsibility to talk about his job, and he was not very good at Texas. But as time goes on, as we see what a, a mess that Texas is, whether it is Steve Sarkeesian in football, whether it is Tom Herman in football, or whether it is Shaka Smart in basketball, maybe you start to realize maybe it's not a coach thing, maybe it's a Texas thing, because Shaka Smart is back to kind of his original roots, okay? At VCU, he played kind of a smaller, quicker, more athletic lineup. When he gets to Texas, he's kind of told, you can't really do that here. We recruit McDonald's All-Americans and five stars. And so he went out and got all these seven-footers, Jared Allen and Mo Bamba and Jackson Hayes. And then he comes back to Marquette, and in, two, in one week, he just looks like he's back in his element. They beat Illinois at home. In that game, they forced 26 turnovers. I thought they did a good job of kind of piecing together a roster as well through the transfer portal. Um, with uh, Daryl Morsell, who was at Maryland last year, Big Ten Player of the Year defensively. And I look at this team. Then they follow it up. They beat Ole Miss in, I believe it's the Charleston Classic, one of the two. Charleston and Myrtle Beach get played at the same time. I can never keep those two, two tournaments straight. But Marquette takes care of business against Ole Miss. Two wins over Power 5, Power 6 conference teams. Credit to, the big, credit to Marquette. They looked awesome. Last note on the Big East, I actually thought St. John's looked pretty good. But overall... Just a very, very impressive week for the Big East where Aaron was wrong. This isn't where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. But I was wrong on the Big East. Really quick, let's get to the Big Ten element of things. And this is one place where I'll say I was right, right? Like, like I think people see me on social media and, oh, Torres, you always like to pat yourself on the back. No, I admit when I'm wrong. That's why we just do the segment where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong. Um, but I think I was right on the Big Ten. Now, I like Purdue. Purdue did not play in this event. It's worth noting Purdue is playing in a, a, a banger of an event this weekend at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. They play in a four-team event that features Purdue versus North Carolina on one side of the bracket, Tennessee Villanova on the other side of the bracket. That's four top 25 teams, four really good teams. I'm excited to watch that one as much as I can, even though they're playing it on a college football Saturday and an NFL Sunday. Shame on them. With that said, though, Let's get into the Big Ten because this is a dumpster fire. And I'll tell you this, I, I did see a lot of this coming, and so let's talk a little bit about these teams. 
First of all, I do want to give Illinois a little bit of a pass. Again, no Kofi Coburn. Whenever you lose an All-American center, that everything runs through him, everything that they're about. Um, you know, like it's hard to really judge them. At the same time, one thing I was right on, one thing, um, you know, I don't know how much I talked about it in the preseason, but I thought there was a little too much hype around this kid, Andre Curbelo. And for people who remember last year, Illinois was really good, number one seed in the NCAA tournament. They had Io DeSumo, friend of the Aaron Torres podcast. They had Kofi Coburn down low. And they had this little spark plug freshman named Andre Curbelo off the bench that he did all these crazy things, these quirky passes, uh, crazy dribbling, all that stuff. And coming into the season, it was like, oh my God, the hype on him was incredible. And I think part of that is, is this media world that we live in where everybody wants to be first, everybody wants to, to have the biggest, boldest take. And every, I, I saw him on first-team All-American list. I'm like, I think he's fine, but can we pump the brakes a little bit on him? Well, what happens on Monday against Marquette? Illinois finishes with 26 turnovers. Curbelo has seven. Again, I'm not going to absolutely crush Illinois for this, but I do think there are some major issues that are worth considering with Illinois, specifically with the guard play, specifically at the point guard position. I still think this team is pretty good. I'm not worried. I want to see what it's like when they get Kofi Coburn back. They will play in a four-team event this week, the, the Hall of Fame Classic in Kansas City, where they will open, I believe, with Cincinnati, and then they will play the winner of Kansas versus Arkansas, baby. How about them hogs? So that'll be a good reflection on if... Um, you know, if 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 uh, if Illinois is better with Kofi Coburn, let's start to wrap on some of the other Big Ten teams. One team I'll tell you I was just dead right on. You know, sometimes you get them right, sometimes you get them wrong. Dead wrong on Seton Hall, dead wrong on Marquette, Shaka Smart. I was dead right on Ohio State. Um, you know, they, they had some really good players coming out of last year. Their best guard, Dwayne Washington, goes to the draft. I dropped them completely out of my top 25. I saw most people still had them in their top 10, top 15. Um, and I didn't see it. Like, I just didn't get it. I said, I, I don't think they really have a point guard, and I don't think I don't like their guards. And this is another thing that happens sometimes in, in um, media narratives is, especially in college basketball, you have one or two recognizable get names, which Ohio State does with their big power forward, EJ Liddell. Um, and I think you start to lose track of what a team is, how a team is built, and how the pieces all fit together. And I said, I don't really like this team's pieces. They got a bunch of big guys. They don't have any guards. Well, what happens? They go to Xavier. Obviously, it's a tough road environment. Obviously, they lose by six. But at the same time, it was pretty clear they do not have a point guard. They do not have a playmaker. And if they don't have a playmaker, I just don't know what you're going to do all season. So with Ohio State, I don't think it's that they're like going to finish, you know, 10 and 25 or whatever but it's just a situation where I think it's going to be really hard for them all year especially in the upper end of the Big Ten credit to the credit to them I guess because they uh they did take care of business really quick we'll wrap up on the Big Ten Michigan kind of interesting so Michigan is kind of where Aaron was right and where Aaron was wrong because I had him in the top 10 but I had him kind of on the back end of the top 10 fringe top 10 team and when I put it out there Michigan fans went crazy. And you can go on YouTube. You can find my top 25s from the summer. I had Michigan as about a top 10 team. And the reason why was pretty simple. First of all, you're a top 10 team. Calm down. But the reason I was a little undersold on Michigan and their fans are yelling and screaming, we're a top five team. We should be maybe number one in the country. Their argument was they brought back an All-American in Hunter Dickinson and they brought in the number one recruiting class in college basketball. Those things sound good on paper, but again, it's how do the pieces fit together? How does the team come together? And so because of that, I bring it up because there were three reasons that I was a little bit lower on Michigan than everybody else, and a little bit lower was number 10 or 11, just not number three, four, five in the country. First of all, 
Number one freshman class in the country? Ask a Kentucky fan. Ask a Duke fan. It's a work in progress. And unless you have two or three transcendent freshmen, um, the totality of the freshmen doesn't really matter. And so you look at Michigan's class, they have one really good freshman named Caleb Houston, probably a one and done. And then it's really the bulk of their class is kind of in that 30 to 100 range in terms of the rankings. They signed six, seven kids, all top 100 kids. That's eventually going to be a number one recruiting class in the country, but there's only one difference maker in that class. Look at Duke. Duke's got two in Paulo Bancaro and Trevor Keels. Um, Kentucky in years past has had two or three difference makers. Anthony Davis, Michael Kidd-Gilchrist, Bam Adebayo, De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk. You know, Michigan has one guy. So I, I wasn't as sold on the freshman. Two, what I would also say, and I talked about this a lot over the summer, they last year got a graduate transfer point guard named Michael Smith from Columbia, okay? And Michael Smith was a really good scorer at Columbia, and Jawan Howard basically sold him, you've scored all your points, come here, be a point guard, be part of a national championship caliber team, and that's exactly what he did. Completely bought in, was a point guard, was a floor general, got others involved, whatever. This year, Michigan made the same decision. They went into the portal and got a high-scoring guard named Devontae Jones from Coastal Carolina, who has been really good for them. But he's not a point guard, and they don't have a point guard. Devontae Jones was awesome against Seton Hall, but he also only had three assists. And so I was worried about the young guys, the spacing and the ball movement, and then finally, I was worried about three-point shooting. Last year, they had three guys who finished in the top, th they all finished at 35% or better three-point shooting. Isaiah Livers, 40-plus percent. Mike Smith, I just mentioned, 40-plus percent. Franz Wagner, 35%. And I said, look, they were so great because they were great defensively. They had shooting across the board. They could space you out, and it left the lane open for Hunter Dickinson. Well, what happened? They don't have the shooting this year. Three for 15 uh, uh, from three against Seton Hall. On the season, they're shooting 32%. They shot 39% last year. And I just think this is who Michigan is going to be. I think they're going to play hard. I think they're going to go through Hunter Dickinson. But if you need big shots, it's going to be really tough. I think this is probably some a team probably somewhere in like the 14 to 25 range for the rest of the year. I think they're a 3-4-5 seed. I do not think they are number one, number two seed type stuff. Also in the Big Ten, a couple other things. I would say on a positive note, how about my boy Mike Woodson? Love that man. Mike F. and Woodson. I was dead wrong. In all seriousness, first big game for Indiana. They played St. John's. Like I said, I was actually very impressed by St. John's in this game. But credit Indiana for coming out with the 76-74 win. Um, you know, they still have work to do. They're still not a great three-point shooting team, which has to be frustrating for Indiana fans. Turn the ball over a little bit too much. But I would also say their best player, Xavier Johnson, or their, not their best player, but maybe their most important player at point guard, he was in foul trouble for most of this game, had just eight points in 19 minutes of play. Um, Trace Jackson Davis was awesome. I thought Race Thompson looked way more athletic than I remember him from last year. So still a lot of work for Indiana to do. Indiana returns to the court on Sunday against Louisiana Lafayette. So a lot of work still to be done. This was really just about the only big game for Indiana in the Ottawa Conference. They do still play Syracuse in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. But I just bring it up to say um, we're not going to get a good feel for how good Indiana is until uh, league play. And lastly, I'd say this. Maryland took a loss to George Mason. Everybody wants to credit George Mason, young head coach, Kim English. I think they're, they're, they're playing well. They're in the A-10. Good for them. I think this is Maryland. I said it all offseason. They're another one. I was much lower on than everybody else. Um, I basically said, like, look, they were kind of what I said with Michigan. 
They had a team last year, all five guys could hit three-pointers. They were quick. They were guards. They were athletic. They defended. This year they go out and they replace a bunch of shooters with a point guard in Fats Russell who cannot shoot the three ball and then a seven-foot-two center, Cutis Wahab from Georgetown. And I just look at it and I just say, it doesn't make sense. What you did well, you, you took away what you did well by trying to fill holes that you didn't need to fill. Stick with what works, whatever. Maryland loses there. All right, a couple quick notes before we get out of here. One, BYU. This could be a full segment, but this show's going so long, I'm just going to save it. Uh, BYU, 3-0, play Oregon in Oregon. Uh, it was technically a neutral site game in Portland. They beat Oregon 81-49. to BYU, of course, two years ago in the COVID year, I thought they were a legitimate Final Four type team. They had uh, Alex Barcelo, who's still on the team, Yoli Childs down low. They had another kid, uh, Hawes, the three-point shooter. I thought that was a Final Four team. I had Mark Pope on this show. He talked about it. He said he thought that was a Final Four team. We'll never know. 2020 NCAA tournament was canceled. Last year, they lose basically everybody except Alex Barcelo. You think they're going to take a major, major step back. Instead, what happens, they make the NCAA tournament as a sixth seed, and Mark Pope is starting to rise. Well, now they beat Oregon, and something interesting happens. So, one of the things I get asked about this show, the Aaron Torres podcast, obviously, um, you know, Kentucky Sports Radio was owned and operated by Kentucky Sports Radio forever. I take it over. We still have a lot of Kentucky fans that listen to this show and a lot of Kentucky fans that lean on me for college basketball advice. And one of the questions I always get asked, I mean, I'm talking once a month, even in the offseason, I get asked, Torres, who's the guy after Coach Cal? And for about two, three years, about two years, really, I've been saying, I think Mark Pope is the answer. Part of it is he's still pretty young. Now, he's a little bit older than you realize. He's 49 years old, which makes me feel old because I, I thought he was more like in the 44, 45 range. But he's still pretty young. Calipari's still going to be around for another four or five years. So you have to start projecting out who could be the guy three, four, five years from now. And I kept saying Mark Pope. For people who don't know, Mark Pope played at Kentucky, was part of a national championship team in 1996, played in the NBA, and I think that he just ha he gets what college basketball is about. He's a good promoter. He's a good act, act you know, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Activist for his program, if you will. Not an activist, but, you know, he, he understands the social media elements of it. He understands how to go viral. He's got a little Eric Musselman in him from Arkansas. Um, and he recruits his you-know-what off. And the thing that he does well Every single year he hits the transfer portal. Every single year he is able to go out and find guys uh, and get them together. And in one season, he flips his rosters. And in modern college basketball, if you still think that you're going to build rosters over a five, six-year period, it's just not going to happen. you got to be adjustable. you got to be flexible. you got to be able to go in the portal. you got to be able to make moves in the portal. And I think Mark Pope does that really, really, really well. And so for the last two or three years, Kentucky fans would ask me, who's the next head coach of Kentucky? And I would say, well... I think you should probably be looking at Mark Pope. And all of them would, oh, no, not Mark Pope. Come on, not Mark Pope. What about Nate Oates? Well, Nate Oates has a, like a $12 million buyout at Alabama, meaning that you have to pay $12 million just to talk to him. Then you got to hire him. Then you got to pay his staff, all that good stuff. Well, what about this guy? What about that guy? I don't think Brad Stevens is coming back from the NBA. I don't even know if he wants to coach again, period, let alone in college. He's supposedly turned down like $70 million a year, or not not a year. That would be an incredible contract. He supposedly turned down like $70 million from Indiana last year. So you start to get down the list. It's like, I don't know who Kentucky fans think they're going to get. Nate Oates ain't coming, not with the current contract that he has right now. Chris Beard is at Texas. I don't know if he wants to leave. And so because of that, I kept saying Mark Pope. 
I bring all this up to say, and we'll make this into a longer segment at some point, but um, Mark Pope uh, was awesome on Tuesday. And you know what my Twitter timeline was? Well, he's the next coach of Kentucky. Well, he's the next coach of Kentucky. So I just find it funny that Kentucky fans have come full circle. Listen, I'll tell you this about Mark Pope. One, never forget, before he was at Kentucky, he played two seasons at Washington. Would not shock me if, uh, if, if Washington opens this year, if he's their top candidate. I don't think that precludes him from getting the Kentucky job, by the way, but I could see him doing three, four, five years at Washington and taking the Kentucky job. I just find it funny. I've been saying this for two years, and everybody wants to tell me, no, 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 you're crazy. Now everybody's like, oh, yeah, that's our guy. We've loved him all along. I'm like, have you really, though? All right, lastly, I do want to wrap up with one last college basketball topic, and it's friend of the Aaron Torres podcast, Jim Calhoun, okay? And I'll try not to go long here, but Jim Calhoun, for the second time, decided to retire as a head coach in men's basketball. Long story short, he was at UConn forever. That's where you remember him from. Uh, coached there until 2012. Decided to step away in 2012 because of health issues. Gives over the program uh, to Kevin Ollie. Stays out of college basketball for two, three, four years. He actually talked about it on this podcast. Did a lot of TV work. Really did not enjoy doing TV at all. And when a small school in Connecticut named St. Joseph's College, a tiny school, West Hartford, Connecticut, not far from where I grew up, you could literally walk to the campus from the house that I grew up in. Uh, they were a, a, a women's only school until about five, six years ago. They decided to go co-ed. They decided to use men's athletics to build up the campus. And they hired Jim Calhoun as a basketball coach. He's been there for the last three full seasons, although really he's been there about four or five years. One year they didn't play games at all. Year one he, he, they play at St. Joseph's. Last year they go 26-3. and three. This year they're 2-2. Two and two, And Jim Calhoun decides, you know what, enough is enough. It's time to step away. So for the second time this week, uh, Jim Calhoun officially announced his retirement. A couple notes here. One, first of all, the good news is there, it has nothing to do with health issues. And that was my biggest fear. Jim Calhoun is 79 years old. Um, he's had multiple bouts with cancer. He's had heart, a heart issue going forward. Uh, he's had a heart issue previously. And because of it, uh, when this news broke, I was genuinely afraid that this might have something to do with a health issue or health problems for Jim Calhoun. The good news is it has nothing to do with that. Uh, Jim Calhoun is going is fine, and he just wants to retire and spend more time with his family. What I would say is on top of that, one, we're very happy that Coach Calhoun is healthy. Hopefully we'll get him back on this podcast sometime in the future. Um, two, I'm just going to say this. I believe he is the most underrated coach in the history of college basketball, maybe the best coach in college basketball history, in my opinion, and he is unquestionably the greatest program builder in the history of college basketball. Let's go one by one by one. One, he's the most underrated, no question, zero doubt in my mind. We talk about modern college basketball coaches, last 20, 25 years. We talk about Coach K. We talk about Roy Williams. We talk about uh, John Calipari. We talk about Jim Beheim. We talk about Bill Self. Jim Calhoun never gets discussed in that conversation, despite the fact three national championships, four Final Fours, and what I would also say on top of that is this. He was at his best in the toughest stretch in the history of the Big East, which would arguably be the toughest stretch any conference in the history of college basketball. You can debate it. You can argue it. You can debate if the Big East was the best conference ever when Jim Calhoun was running through it, but here's what you need to know. 94, he had a run that was incredible. Let's go through year by year. 93-94. Big East is as good as it's been. He goes 29-6, wins the Big East, makes a Sweet 16, loses to Florida. 94-95, 28-5, and 
Elite Eight wins the Big East. By the way, loses to UCLA in California. UCLA is the eventual champion that year. 95-96, 30-2, Ray Allen wins the Big East, loses in the Sweet 16 to Mississippi State. 96-97, 18-15, loses his whole team, goes to the NIT. 97-98, 32-5, Elite Eight, loses to North Carolina in North Carolina. They have Antoine Jamison and Vince Carter. 98-99, wins a national championship, 34-2, wins the Big East, wins the national championship. So just think about what I just told you. Toughest stretch in Big East history. 29-5, 28-5, and 30-2, 18-15, 32-5, 34-2. That guy is incredible. That guy never gets discussed. We always talk about Coach K. Well, guess what? They met up twice in the Final Four. Jim Calhoun, 2-0 head-to-head against Coach K. 99 national championship game, UConn wins. 2004 Final Four, UConn wins, goes on to win the national championship. We talk so much about Coach K. Love Coach K. No disrespect to Coach K. Jim Calhoun had his number late in their respective careers. What I would also say, I've had people in college basketball tell me they believe he's the greatest coach of all time, and part of it is this. He is certainly the greatest program builder of all time, and let me explain why. Look, before we get into it, I think it goes out saying, I love UConn. I'm an alum. Went to school there. Would fight, would do anything. Uh, Jim Moore is the greatest coach in the history of football. you've 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 heard my UConn rants before, okay? What I would also tell you is, As much as I love UConn, there is no reason they should be an athletic power or that they should be, uh, you know, one of the premier men's basketball programs in America. Now, certainly they had some advantages being in the Big East, but what I will say is, one, they were the worst program in the Big East when Jim Calhoun got there. But on top of that, if you have ever been to the campus, it is in the north, I think, northwest portion of the state, northeast, northwest, whatever. You drive up, you drive through the woods for a solid 20 minutes, you turn a corner, and boom, you have this major, 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 major university in the middle of the woods, in the middle of nowhere. The closest city is Hartford. It's about a half an hour away. Um, you know, they didn't build the football stadium on campus because they couldn't conceivably get forty or 50,000 people onto that campus with the infrastructure that was in place in terms of highways. They would have had to build a completely different highway system to have a football campus on stadium, a football stadium on campus. So I bring it up to say, as much as I love UConn, there is no reason that this program should be a national power in athletics, yet here we are, and it is really a direct reflection of two people, Jim Calhoun, Gino Oriema. There have been other great coaches, Nancy Stevens, Hall of Fame field hockey coach, Ray Reed, one of the great men's soccer coaches of all time, non-revenue sports, the reason UConn is the school that it is, the reason it is the athletic program that it is, the reason that Jim Mora, in all seriousness, sought out an opportunity to coach at UConn was because of Jim Calhoun and Gino Oriema. Someday I'll have to do this speech on Gino Oriema, but let's focus on Jim Calhoun right now because I can tell you, I remember going to that campus in the early 90s. That place was completely falling apart, okay? Um, There is no recruit in America that would want to come to UConn in the climate that it was in in the early to mid-90s. No disrespect, it's just the facts. One, I think it's great that the athletic department has allowed the the, the university to flourish. The, the university got billions of dollars in state funding thanks to the success of the men's and women's basketball team. That is not my opinion, that is a fact. But on top of that, what I would also say is, think about what Jim Calhoun had to do in that situation going up against Georgetown, Syracuse, uh, Seton Hall was rolling at that time. The Big East was rocking. Rick Patino was at Providence for a few years. That is what Jim Calhoun walked into. That is he w- what he was going up against, and that is where he built a program. The best part, I still say, he did it with guys. He had maybe another thing, maybe the best eye for talent in the history of college basketball, okay? Um, I have said this routinely. You can argue with me. You can debate me. You can discuss it with me. 
there were only three guys that you, that UConn ever recruited that were no doubt about it NBA players the second they showed up on campus. Charlie Villanueva, Rudy Gay, and Andre Drummond. That was it. You can go through the rest. Uh, ben Gordon was a fringe top 25, top 30 recruit, six foot two shooting guard. Kemba Walker, you can argue with me on this. Kemba Walker chose UConn over Cincinnati and St. John's. Uh, Kentucky didn't want him. North Carolina didn't want him. Syracuse didn't want him. Uh, UCLA didn't want him. Kansas didn't want him. I know he's an NBA all-star. When he got to UConn, he was not that guy. Uh, you go on and on down the list. Ray Allen, skinny shooter from South Carolina. He was better known for his high school friend, Kevin Garnett, than he was. Goes to, goes to, goes to UConn. I know Rick Pitino wanted him. I'm just telling you, he wasn't a surefire NBA player when he committed. I bring it up to say, best program builder ever, one of the best eyes for talent ever, and I will argue maybe the best player, maybe the best coach in the history of college basketball, but he is certainly the most underappreciated coach in the history of college basketball. The number of guys that have won three or more national championships, even multiple national championships uh, in college basketball, that list is really, really, really short. Now, you can argue uh, that maybe Jay Wright will get to this list one day. Maybe if Billy Donovan somehow uh, uh, comes back to college basketball that he will get on this list someday. But here are the coaches that have won three or more national championships as a head coach in men's college basketball. Uh, John Wood won 10. You may have heard of him. Coach K5, Adolph Rupp 4, Roy Williams 3, Jim Calhoun 3, Bobby Knight 3. That is the list. We have six coaches all time who have won three or more national championships, and we always talk about Coach K as an all-time great. We always talk about Adolph Rupp as an all-time great. We talk about Roy Williams as an all-time great. Never talk about Jim Calhoun. This man deserves the credit. He deserves the respect. I hope he enjoys retirement. I hope he's hitting him right down the fairway in Hilton Head, and he's enjoying time with his wife, Pat, having a good old time doing Jim Calhoun things in Hilton Head. All right, I think that's it for this episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. A lot of ground we covered here. It's time to get out of here. You get the point. You know what this episode's about. Before we get out of here, make sure that you are subscribed to the Air Tour Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Follow on social media at Aaron underscore Torres, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. Shout out to Rick Craig. Shout out Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out Pat Calhoun. I hope you enjoy some time with your husband. I will be back later next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.